when people contemplate the season of Lent, liturgical churches across the land sometimes kind of uh, have difficulty yearning for it to arrive. Because in many people's mind, the season of Lent, because it's about self-examination and self-denial and repentance, it's about sin in our lives and getting rid of sin. They focus on the reality of sin instead of focusing on the power of Christ and the resurrection. There's nothing wrong with feeling bad about sin. In fact, it is what God has put within us to feel bad about those things that hurt us, those things that separate us from God. But the great news about the cross is that every Sunday, even in the midst of the season of Lent, we come to this place to dwell upon and to think about the season of Lent in the context of Easter. Because Sunday is always about Easter. We don't ever talk about sin without talking about resurrection. We don't ever proclaim being captive to sin unless we talk about resurrection. God forbid it should ever be done in any pulpit. And God forbid that when we preachers talk about sin, that in the end we can look at our congregation and say, Don't worry, God still loves you. <laughs> Who would believe that message? You know, when we talk about sin, we need to get over it at the end. We need to put on our countenance and in our hearts and minds that feeling of being loved. The video was awesome about the trip to Honduras. It was. It was awesome. The facial expressions of those youth and children, they looked like children who knew what it meant to be loved. They looked like children who were experiencing love. They didn't look like children who were lost or were abandoned most of the time, although you did see a few captive moments when they were very pensive. And they have a lot to have on their young minds. But the church, when we get together to worship in Lent, we must not let the purpose of Lent overcome the answer to Lent. We must remember to celebrate what Lent is about. So today as we think about our Lenten journey, it can seem like a drag if you only concentrate on the sin, if the self-examination, or perhaps even the realization of sin. You know, the other day I was praising, I was amazed to find out that I had a sin. <laughs> you know, you may have had that same experience if you've been examining your life. You might have gone, whoops, I had not really thought about that one lately, it has snuck up on me. Perhaps you've been looking at one and you thought about it inside, but it was so evil you wouldn't even speak its name out loud. You could only whisper to Jesus, oh Jesus, forgive me. Because Lenten season is about those moments, but it's also about those moments of forgiveness as well. Now, how are we going to do that? How are we going to get it? Well, today we're reading the first of the two commandments of the ten given by Moses. You know, the big ten. That's the original hot top ten list that God had. And at the top of God's top ten list were the top things. And that's what we're going to be talking about. That's what I'm going to be teaching about on this book entitled God's at War. Author Kyle Eidelman, pastor of the Christian Church in Lexington, Kentucky. At one time, I suppose he still is huge church out there. I used to drive by it often watching it grow. 
When we think about the Ten Commandments, we often think about rules, we often think about laws, and we often think about getting all burdened up by them. And if we know them and understand them well, we think about how often we break them. And yet, most people live with the idea as Christians in the churches today, around the country, that they don't really see themselves as the breaker of those Ten Commandments that often. Of course, the Ten Commandments were given to the original people of God in order that they might understand that God wanted a certain kind of order to his life. Uh, that order includes waking up with a smile on your face. Obviously, our young children need some instruction in that, parents, because <laughs> when they wake up, they want to grouse around for a long time. I know I raised one of those. I had one of each. I, that seems to be God's pleasure. You know, you have that one, the obedient one, and you have the stretch the limits one. You have the smiling one when they wake up, and you have the one who wakes up when you don't want them to have a gun because it could be really ugly. <laughs> but all it takes is a few moments, even if you're that one who wakes up, and you're like, ugh, another day. Even if that's you, before you get yourself out of the bed, then why don't you just take a moment to get yourself in front of Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus, that I woke up. You know, you don't have to wake up every morning. You don't have to wake up with that sour look on your face. You just might not wake up at all. You know, you could just go to be with Jesus, and then you'd have a smile, hopefully. You know, you'd have a smile. You'd be one of his children. You'd get there, and everything would be all right. Well, why not just start it now? Yeah, that includes high school students. I'm talking to y'all, too. You don't have to get up either and act like you're 16 or act like you're 14. You go, oh, man. Okay, Mom, I'll get up after the 17th time. You know, we'll all be running around, then you become frantic because you're going to have to stay after, oh, whatever. You know how all that goes. Okay. Well, sin is kind of like that, too. We need to get over ourselves. But when we're going to talk about these commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Because gods before God, with a capital G, are idols. Now, here we go. We're not going to dwell on it. We're going to try to do something about it. Now, you may be thinking, well, I don't have any idols. Well, it's going to be my job this morning to convince you that you're deceiving yourself, <laughs> along with most of the rest of the Christian population, probably. And that is the thesis of this book, Gods at War. In fact, it goes so far, Kyle does in this book, to proclaim that at the root of every sin, root of every sin, can I say that one more time? At the root of every sin is idolatry. Now, when preachers say every and all and must and all that kind of stuff, you have to watch yourself. In fact, when you say that, by the way, you have to watch yourself. All is a big word. All you ever do is complain. No, that's not true. No, teenagers just doesn't complain all the time. You know, 80% of the time maybe, but not 100% of the time. Uh, all you ever do is want to go play golf. That's not true. Even Gary occasionally doesn't want to play golf. I don't know what day that is, but it's someday. You know, the reality is that we all have things in our lives that need to be dealt with. And, but every, all is a big word. But he says every sin has as its root idolatry. And what we often identify as the sin is really only a symptom. Now, that's a different way of thinking about the things that you struggle with in your life. If you think about most of the things that you struggle with and you think they're the sin, what if they are only the symptom of what's really a wrong? What's really wrong in your, yourself, in your heart, in your relationship to God? Well, it occurred to me as I was reading his book that we, there's a process here we usually go through. First of all, we have to become aware of what is sin. 
Secondly, we have to understand what the sin is. We have to have a knowledge of that sin. And thirdly, we need to have forgiveness from that sin as we repent from it and literally turn and go the other way. That is victorious Christian living. Victorious Christian living rarely is defined as being sinless or Christian perfection. Yes, there are a few persons in this world who testify to being entirely sanctified, and they are living without any known or intentional sin in their lives. Uh, John Wesley said, most of the people who get there are shortly about to die. Uh, although he did recognize it could be achieved on earth, never professed it for himself, but he got very close to professing it a couple of times in his letters. But when we look at this and we think about this thing, this thing that we struggle with, these idols, let's remember, could it be, just, just ponder the question, could it be that any time we break any of the nine commandments, we've already broken the first one? Could it be? Could it be that, as Martin Luther said, the father of Protestant Reformation, that you can't break any of the nine without having already broken the first? That Martin Luther had it right way, way back there in the 1500s? Could it be that we struggle with too many symptoms? Aren't we great at symptoms, by the way? Don't you love pills? We live in a pill society. You know, if you have an ache in your knees, take these pills. And now that... You can take a variety of pills for those aches in your knees. You can take, well, but, you know, what is it? Uh, chondroitin. That's the best one for those. But somebody else has got a different pill. Some people just take Tylenol. Some people take Advil. Some people don't take anything. I don't know what they're thinking. But anyway, <laughs> some people take naproxen. I like to take them all just in case I've missed something. You know, just take a pill if you can afford it. Just take it because you never know. It might make you live longer. And the longer I live, the more I get to drive my wife of 41 years insane. And that's one of the small pleasures in my life. <laughs> if you talk to her long, you might discover that I'm succeeding or failing. I'll let you be the judge of that, according to her sanity. But Martin Luther said and agreed with Kyle, basically, or you might say Kyle agreed with him, that this thing has to be attacked. So let's talk about being aware. Let's take God's view of our life this Lenten season. Let's take God's view of our life. What do you see when you look at yourself as if you were God? And you're on a Lenten journey to Easter. You know, when the people got ready to travel to Honduras, I bet it took them a while to pack their bags. They were trying to pack as few bags as possible, take as little as possible so they wouldn't pay too much baggage, make sure they had all the essential things and none of the non-essential things because after all, they were only going to be gone a week. Now, if you travel somewhere else, you might be staying long. You might have to take a lot more. You might have to take a second bag. But you don't want to forget something that you need along the way. You also don't want to assume that you can get what you want when you get there, right? I know a couple that did that with small babies when they traveled abroad, and they just thought, well, it's too much trouble to bother with the stroller. We'll just buy one when we get there. It cost them $800 for that thought. A stroller for a baby in a foreign country cost them $800 when they finally found one after a couple of days searching. Take your stroller with you is a word for that wise. But the idea is if you're on a trip, you want to be sure you have what you need. Well, let me assure you that if you're on this trip, one of the things you need is a careful examination of your heart. Now, you see in Hebrew thought, the heart is the center of our will and our emotions and our actions as well. Everything flows from the heart. Not, not your mind really for them. It, it was the heart. So therefore, if you want to think about 
living a life for God and you're taking a journey to meet God there, you want to think about what you need to have in that heart. And if you want to examine your Christian life, you don't need to look at your actions. They may be symptomatic and tell you what you really love, but you need to look inside your heart. You need a heart cath. So that's a direct knowledge. When a doctor puts you into a heart cath, they see in your heart. They see what your heart's doing, and they can do things about it while they're right there. That's the beauty of a heart cath. They not only see it, they can attack it right there. You know what? The same is true for you and me. If we examine our lives and look into our hearts long enough and deep enough so that we can connect the feelings of our heart with the symptoms of our lives, then the two can make sense. I'm, gonna, I'm trying to decide on which sin to pick on this morning. There's so many at my disposal. Of course, I'm thinking about other congregations and the people in them, not y'all, but other congregations. First thought would be, well, I love God. I obviously don't have any other gods. Really? I love God so much I don't have any other gods. That would be a person who's unaware of who God is. That would be the person who is more than likely unaware of how much in our society and in our culture and in our normal lives we've grown accustomed to that seem all right. But if we can look at our hearts through a cath of God's, we might see something quite different. We might look in our hearts and realize there's a reason that I've never tied. It's not because I can't afford to. It's because I choose not to. It's because I love the things my money buys more than I love the God that I claim I worship as my only God. There's a reason that I want sex at inappropriate times and ages with inappropriate people in inappropriate circumstances. There's a reason why you have lustful thoughts when you look at someone else, not your spouse of many years. And all of those reasons or about that symptom are located in your heart. It's a heart matter. The way you perceive your surroundings flows from your heart. You say, well, it's really hard to get up and come to church. That's a heart issue. You think you love God, you just don't love the church. Good luck with that. God said we need worship. That's a funny thing. God said you needed the same partner all your life. God hates divorce. I realize sometimes divorce occurs. God doesn't always get the ideal in this, this world. Sometimes divorce seems like the best of bad solutions. I get that. And sometimes divorce happens because we don't get prepared well before we get married. Or when we get married, we don't stay engaged in the marriage. We allow other things to be as important to us as our wife. Oh, what kind of issue is that? Oh, yeah, that would be a heart issue. And by the way, if you can't love your spouse well enough, you have a heart issue with God as well. Well, I, okay, I'll work on the heart thing if you don't love my spouse. What about my neighbor next door? Yep, got to love them too. Well, what about the one down at the end of the street that ruins every community gathering? Yep, got to love that crank too. What about, yeah, just say yeah, got to love them all. Because Luke 10 27 says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. 
Niagara's area. Well, I, yeah, but there's this person, you know, that's this person that killed that boy in Wiley. God loves that person that killed that boy in Wiley. God loves you too. I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment. You've got to be aware of your sin. And once we recognize that we might be living a life chasing symptoms rather than causes, we come to the next part. You need some knowledge. Kyle says idolatry is the number one issue throughout the Bible. That gods are at war constantly, and they are warring over who gets the throne of our hearts. I remember at one time, golf was my idol. You say, how do you know that? Because I realized I wanted to go and play golf rather than come to church. I realized that when I thought about something, I was thinking about golf. I realized that when I was planning to do something, it centered around golf. I, yeah, some of you said, well, you still play golf. Well, yeah, but I don't worship it anymore. And I have to be careful about that. You know, how do you know you're not worshiping anymore? When you call me and it's on a day I'm playing golf, I will come. If it means I'm in the middle of a round, I stop the round. If it means you need me on the day that the, the most beautiful golf trip I've ever, it means if you, if you were 12 or 24 hours away from the start of the Masters Golf Tournament, you know how hard it is to get a ticket to the Masters Golf Tournament? I had two given to me. I had two. I was there, and I'd been playing golf all week, and I got there the day before, and I got a phone call. So-and-so died. Just wanted you to know. Okay. I'll be on the plane shortly to come home. No, 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 no. You need to stay. I didn't mean for you to come home because you're at the Masters Golf Tournament. I looked over at my partner whose mouth was hanging open. He's a preacher, too, but I won't call his name. And he thought, you're going back? I said, I got to go back. I have to go back. I got on the plane. I went back. That's how I knew I didn't love golf more than I loved my Lord. You see, I need checkpoints. So the temptation was strong to say, I'll see you Monday. <laughs> yeah, end of the story, I got tickets the next year. So I almost got to the Masters once, and I did get the next year. And nobody died. <laughs> Knowledge. Let's realize that we're not talking about worshiping cosmic deities. Not, I bet there's not anybody here that's doing that if you're above the age of six. We're not talking about worshiping some statue. When I go into restaurants and I see Buddha sitting there, I always kind of laugh. First of all, it, it's a bad statue. I mean, <laughs> if you're going to worship something, would you really worship somebody with a big round belly? I just don't, I don't get that. I mean, that just doesn't work. So, so statues probably don't tempt you. So you, you might be thinking, well, I don't, because I don't worship idols. I don't worship statues. Well, good for you. But do you worship? You might want to hold on to your seat now. You might find yourself occasionally in your imagination or with your checkbook in its use, or when you're on the computer running through search engines, or perhaps when you're working on your calendar and where you will be and what you will do, that you might discover that every sin, as Kyle says, every discouragement, every lack of purposeful action, all our struggles are because of idolatry. Regularly, talking to people, as preachers do, and you do too, 
you hear about they're struggling, they're hurting, they're stressing, they're avoiding, they're lusting, they're worrying. Even though they don't often express them as sin, they just think that's the way life is supposed to be. Those are all symptoms of a heart issue. The people have been worshiping someone other than God. And when those things fail, it's even hard for them to worship God because they thought God was supposed to supply them with all of those other gods. Symptoms rather than the true answer. What is a God? It's what we sacrifice for. It's what we pursue. God says, you had no other gods before me. Now, the Hebrew word there, as we've translated before me, a better translation, as Kyle says, and I'm going to go with his research, is that you shall have no other gods in my presence. Because, you see, God's not really interested in a competition. God doesn't want to be the number one God in your life, and you can have 21 other gods underneath him. God wants to be the only God. Because there's only one God who created us. There's only one God who has made us in his own image. There's only one God who understands humanity completely. There's only one God who can save us from who we are. There's only one God who can forgive us when we fail. There's only one God in this whole universe, and God is not interested in being in competition. And if you want to be in competition by worshiping other gods other than the one true God, God will say, I'm sorry, I never knew you. Verse 4 says, I am a jealous God. And we go, ooh, that sounds awesome. God, jealousy? Jealousy is a bad thing, isn't it? Well, not particularly in this book when you really understand the word. Jealousy is a, it seems that carries the same kind of word. All of a sudden, I lost the word. It becomes a power over us. There's another way to, to interpret it where it's more meaningful in our language. But let's just say jealousy is what you crave. It's what you hunger for. Jealousy is what you feel when that which you love has jilted you. We need to have a knowledge about what we're choosing to love instead of God and see it from God's perspective. Now, you've only known me for how long now? Seven, eight months? Nine months? Going to nine months? But suppose you were walking to a restaurant and it was late in the evening and you were planning on a candlelight dinner with your partner. And when you arrived at the restaurant, you looked over there and there was your pastor. And your pastor was leaning across the table talking First giveaway, talking seriously with the woman across the table from you. And they were responding back and forth. And you look closer and you realize, that doesn't look like Sally. She has blonde hair. That doesn't look like a church member either. And that's not a normal preacher look. And then Sally walked in suddenly in the door, and you went, oh, my God. <laughs> and Sally walked up and said, hi, Doug. I hope you're enjoying your day. That ain't going to happen, by the way. <laughs> Probably the loud noise you would hear would be the crashing of the glass next door or close by where she'd be breaking into a store looking for a gun. <laughs> that would be more true of my wife. <laughs> if she was not jealous of me being there, how much love could she really have for me? Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not talking about crazy, sick jealousy, but I'm talking about having a passion for what's yours. I once told a young person, this is just for y'all. Y'all will be sick of it. 
Gotta be come up with yourself. I'm coming over here in the dark because this wasn't my proudest moment. But my daughter brought home a guy. And not much of one at that. <laughs> Small enough town, I knew that. And I could tell by the look on his face and by the way she was acting, this was not going to go down well. I tolerated for a short while, and then one night sitting at our dining room table with her at one end, bawling and squalling, and him sitting next to me, I told him, you are messing with one of the most important things in my life, and I will hurt you. <laughs> you need to know it will not happen. I will find out, and it will be me personally hurting you, but somebody will be knocking on your door. <laughs> you are to stay away from her. You're not to talk to her. You need to stop it now. And if you think I'm kidding, look again real closely in my eyes. Because that's one of the most precious things I have in the world. You will not destroy her. Now you get out of my house and you don't come back. I'm not listening to any of your words. You just need to go. And you better stay away. He's still alive. <laughs> At least his ears did work. Now I'll come back to the rest of the congregation. That was kind of rude of me to say that. He was a If a person tells you that, by the way, at <laughs> some point in your life, then you might want to think this. How am I acting in such a way that I appear that bad to a parent who loves that person I'm interested in that much? Check your heart. It could be you are a little boy whose mind your daddy can read. Just saying. It works for girls, too, but not just guys. Might even work with mothers, but guys might be more fearful. I don't know. I have a lot of guns. <laughs> you think God is not jealous of you? When God sees you in love with success more than with him, when God sees you more in love with the biggest house on the block rather than with him, when God sees anything that takes God's place, God is jealous for your love. God is the hound of heaven who pursues us relentlessly and continually because he loves us so much. And anytime we spurn God to love something else in the place that belongs only to God, then we have created an idol. It could be sports. It could be the Dallas Cowboys. Thank God I'm over that idol. There's nothing left to worship. <laughs> but there never really was, even when they were winning championships. You have to be careful with what you worship. You have to be careful elevating any. You can elevate your spouse or even your child. Say that story I told just the youth. Say that story. If I had have actually killed the boy or caused his death, I would have been worshiping that and my daughter more than I did God. Making him think he was going to die. Well, I don't know about that. That might have been wrong. Okay. You know, you, you have to ask yourselves because good things can be made into idols. Any good thing can be made into idols. Some people make church an idol. You know that? Some people make church an idol. They're at church so much that their kids don't know their name. They're at church so much that they think so much like a church that their children don't know if they're real because they don't have enough heart-to-hearts with their youth. Anything can be made an idol that's good. And God wants you to have all the good things in the world. He just doesn't want you to make any of them your idol. And God is the first one to know 
when you love something else more than him. You wonder why there's a tithe and it's a number and it's a percent. God's testing you to see if you really love him. If you say, well, preacher, I, I, I love him so many other ways. That's just one way I can't love him. Then you don't really love him. You're not tithing right now. You're feeling really bad. Here's some good news. God is waiting for you to turn back to him. God will help you make different financial decisions. In fact, whenever we get through with this Lenten series, I'm going to be talking about financial health for a few weeks. We're going to be talking about how to be a Christian with your finances. Make sure you're not worshiping. I was really going to get through seven minutes ago. The youth thing took up five of that, so that was just a counseling session. <laughs> not meant to be advice for parents grandparents. I have a little girl granddaughter now. So I better be careful. <laughs> Can't have any other gods before me because I'm a jealous God. You make anything that looks like me or tries to substitute for me and you begin to worship it or serve it with your money, your time, your talents, your thoughts. Then you've broken away from me. Get a heart test. God wants your love first. Love, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all this other stuff will be added unto you. You had the altar filled today. The chancellor, well, you're down here praying. I'm praying that you were using that spiritual calf to look into your heart to see where your affections lie right now, to make sure that none of them are unholy. Even your love for your partner can be made into an idol. Even the love of your grandchildren can be made into an idol. Yes, your love for soccer on Sunday can certainly be an idol. What might it cost you? I don't know. Figure it out. Figure it out. Because whatever it is, it's not worth more than